What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with one Mr. Doug Sandridge of Fulcrum Energy Operating, but also more recently of the oil and gas executives for nuclear energy. As you guys know, that type of uh, collaboration is catnip to me. Had to get Doug on, published his op-ed announcing it in Grid Brief, and glad to see you here, buddy. How's it going? And so great to see you and talk to you today. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited to get all into how you came to what might be one of the more head-turning ideas in nuclear advocacy that we've seen for a while, this oil and gas executive's declaration for more nuclear energy. But before we get into any of that, we got to know about the guy that made it happen. We got to know about you, bud. So tell me the story. Like, uh, I assume that your route to nuclear was circuitous, as was almost everybody is that I ever talked to on this show. But just tell me about how you got into energy in general and all that. What did I give me the lowdown? Yeah, and I like to say I've kind of returned to nuclear. I, you know, I was born... 1959, I was born into an oil and gas family. My dad was a petroleum, excuse me, geological engineer. And so really spent my whole life chasing oil. Uh, so I've been in the oil business my whole life. My dad traveled the world. We moved around the U.S. quite a bit when I was really young. And then when I was after first grade, we moved overseas and lived most of my childhood overseas. We started out in Norway. And this was, you know, there are a lot of companies that were, were trying to find, they, they knew that there was a huge, there were, there were huge oil fields and gas fields and potential in the North Sea, but nobody had been able to find the first discovery yet. And I believe there was at least 200 dry holes that were drilled in the North Sea on drilling rigs before the first major discovery was found. And so my dad was worked offshore on a drilling rig. And my mom was a great sport and we lived in Oslo, Norway. And, you know, my dad was gone a lot and, but he worked for two years out in the North Sea. And then in 1968, we moved and they still hadn't even found oil, even after 200 wells. And we moved to the Netherlands and about a year and six months after we left Norway, the first major discovery was made, Ecofisk in the North yeah. Sea. And Ecofisk is still one of the, the great oil fields of the North Sea today, still producing. So, but I, I traveled around and really didn't move back to the United States until I was in 10th grade. I moved from Bogota, Colombia to Midland, Texas. You know Midland and you can imagine I what do. kind of culture shock uh, a kid that's lived overseas all of his life experienced when he moves into Midland, goes to Midland Lee High School right after desegregation occurs, a lot of oh. racial things going on. And, but it, of course it's all, it all built character and went to high school there. And then it was pretty obvious my parents were gonna get transferred back overseas. I originally wanted to go to Texas A&M because that's where most of my friends were going. Mm. But my dad kind of encouraged me to go to OU, Oklahoma University. And there are several reasons for that. Both my mom and dad went to Oklahoma University to start. I was actually baptized in Norman, Oklahoma. And, but they thought, they knew they were going to be moving back overseas. I had grandparents still living in Oklahoma. They thought it'd be really cool for me with them being a continent away for me to be close to some family. But the other thing that was kind of neat was, you know, as you can imagine, if your dad works in the Ivory Coast or in Norway or someplace, where do you, how do you get in-state tuition as a mm. college if you get in? So... As it turns out, Oklahoma was very generous. I think this, I think this is a state policy, but it might've been a university policy. At that time, if your parents lived overseas, but they worked for a major oil company like Phillips or Conoco or Kerr-McGee, then the universities would honor in-state tuition for their kids that wanted to remain back in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. So I got in-state tuition, went to the University of Oklahoma, thought I wanted to be an architect. And uh, I loved architecture, still do. But when I started doing the, the classes, I really didn't like the classes. And so my sophomore year, I transferred into nuclear engineering. And it's funny because I say that as if I was some sort of 
destined to be nuclear guy. The reality was I didn't know what I wanted to do. A lot of my friends were in engineering. I thought nuclear engineering sounded interesting and sounded, it sounded cool. You know, we're living in the, in the seventies and the nuclear age. It does sound cool. <laughs> and, and so I, I mean, I literally, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, I really wanted to be a nuclear engineer. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I was going to take engineering classes and declaring as a nuclear engineer was as good as anything else. Mm. So that was in the fall of 78. And you know what happened in the spring of 1979, we had a little, we had a little meltdown, right. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and Three Mile Island accident occurred. And it just kind of, you know, as you know, the nuclear industry was on a pretty solid decline already by that time, mm -hmm. economics, falling demand for electricity, all sorts of issues we don't need to get into, but nuclear is already on the way out at that time. But the Three Mile Island uh, accident was sort of the cherry on top for me. And I, I transferred into uh, petroleum land management and ended up spending my entire career working in oil and gas. And so I'm, I'm unashamed. I think the oil and gas business has been great. It's done lots of great things for humanity. I'm still working in it. I'm still, that's how I make my, my day job is still oil and gas. My night job is advocating for, for nuclear energy. But I didn't really, after I got into oil and gas, I, it's not like I've been a lifetime nuclear advocate because you, you start a job, you're trying to do well, you have a family, you have kids. I have three kids a wife, a 60 or 70 hour a week job. You don't have time to be advocating for somebody else's industry. And, and nuclear really wasn't on anyone's radar. It was kind of last, last year's, you know, business. Mm. So, you know, nuclear started to have a renaissance that I was paying attention to prior to Fukushima, but then Fukushima put the squash on that. Oh yeah. Um, real yeah. quick, right? <laughs> real quick. And, and so I really didn't as I say, return to nuclear energy until 2020. And in 2020, I was teaching a university classes, you know, on the side, in addition to my day job. And of course, I was always trying to listen to podcasts and read as much as I can. To, you can't go into these classes and have those kids know more than you. And one of the <laughs> things that I, I wanted to do was I wanted to evaluate all the energy policies of all of the democratic um, candidates for president. Now talk about something that make you brain dead to <laughs> try to do that. And of course there was, there was more than 20 candidates at one time. And yeah. to be honest, a, probably more than half of them didn't even have an energy policy. And no. there were some that had pretty incoherent energy policies. And you can forgive Pete Buttigieg for not having a coherent energy policy. He was a mayor of what? South Small Indiana. town. Yeah. In Indiana. So, yeah. You, you can't really blame him, but well, I got so incensed when I read Michael Bloomberg's energy policy. He had an energy policy on his website. And in the second paragraph, I think it was, it says, if you elect me president, then by the end of our sec my second term, so we're talking eight years, we will have 80% renewable electricity in the United States. And my head nearly exploded. Mm -hmm. but not because I didn't like the idea, because I thought this is insanity. I mean, there's no way... It's not a matter of a lack of will or a lack of money. The physics just could not, could not justify that kind of transition that quickly. The economics could not be justified, the technology. Mm -hmm. And I thought it made me angry because Michael Bloomberg knows better. I mean, he, he's, he's a smart guy. I don't, I don't have a lot in common with him, you know, policy-wise, but he's a smart guy. He knows, so he's obviously pandering. And so I started on an endeavor to identify all the reasons his claim was just ridiculous. And he kind of wound up after a year in a presentation that I still give today, the seven hurdles to net zero carbon emissions. And it was just, it was just idiocy for him to say that. But at the end of this journey where I had, had researched for almost a year, all the reasons why Michael Bloomberg's claim was, was garbage. I then came to the conclusion, the only way you're going to have serious decarbonization is through nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't need renewables. I'm not saying it has to be all nuclear energy, but a, an honest discussion, a intellectually honest discussion requires you to consider that nuclear energy has got to be a big part of what we're going to do here going forward. So now I've become much more attuned to the nuclear space, but I don't know how I can help. I'm still an oil and gas guy. And then 
the Indian Point thing comes along. So in the spring of 2021, so a year later, Governor Cuomo decides to close Indian Point nuclear power station outside, you know, uh, not that far from New York City. I think it's on the Hudson River. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I do to make my, to keep my game sharp for all the students I teach is I listen to a lot of podcasts. And of course, you and I both know Robert Bryce pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I, I was pretty committed to, he's one of the podcasts like yours that I listen to every week. There's oh, I have five or six that I listen to that I never miss. And I always listen to Robert. And, you know, I mostly agree with him. I don't always agree with him, but I mostly agree with him. And that week that they closed Indian Point, he was so angry that mm-hmm. instead of doing a single podcast, which he normally does one podcast a week, like you and most people, he did four podcasts in a row, back to back to back to back. And so I was listening to the first one. He says, come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about Indian Point again. And then day three and then day four. And literally by the time we got through day four, I was ready to rip off my shirt and run through a wall. (laughs) Because it just seems so ridiculous to close Indian Point, as you like to say, a industrial cathedral of clean energy. Mm -hmm. It was safe. It was inexpensive. It was already built. I mean, this is the low-hanging fruit. I mean, if you're going to do anything, don't shut down existing nuclear power plants that are safe and creating cheap, virtually carbon-free electricity. And mm-hmm. Robert brought this, you know, brought this out in his four episodes. Now, you know, I don't know if you ever listened. If you listened to Robert at that time or not. Oh, I did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But his first, his first guest was Mark Nelson. Yep. And so I never even knew about Mark Nelson until that interview. And I was just mesmerized by, you know, Mark is charismatic. He's got all this information. He's smart and he just is so well-spoken. And I, so then I started just looking for other places to find other interviews with Mark and, you know, he's on Decouple and all these other places. And so I said, I got to meet this guy, Mark. So to be honest, I sent him a, I sent him an email, I sent him a message probably by LinkedIn because I wasn't doing Twitter. And he called me back immediately and we hit it off. Um, uh, he's, he's such a great guy, but we had so much. Mark's a dear friend. Yeah. Yeah. He is, uh, he was, uh, his mom and dad live in Oklahoma and my mm-hmm. mom still lives. They, they live in Oklahoma City. My mom lives in Norman, which is, you know, 18 miles away, University of Oklahoma. My mom still lives in Norman. I'm there all the time. That was, that was common thread. But the second common thread was, I I believe this is correct. So excuse me if I'm wrong, but I think his great uncle was working in the North Sea with my dad at the same time in Norway. So I don't know know if his dad, his great uncle and my dad knew each other, but they worked for the same company. They they must have come across each other. But the, the, the thing that was, that really tied us together at the very first conversation was he had got a scholarship to go to Cambridge. And it turns out that the scholarship that he received to go to Cambridge was given to him at university. He, he was going at the time to OSU, Oklahoma State University. That's right. And yes. the scholarship that he received was one from one of my mom and dad's best friends. And so- Get he, out. Oh, No way. Yeah. So he wanted to know about them and what are they doing? Are they still alive? And so anyway, Mark then I think realized, hey, I've got a, I got a live one here. She wants to help with <laughs> nuclear energy. He's going to be my token oil and gas. Uh, and, <laughs> and so he started trying to get me involved in different ways and getting me hooked up with different organizations. And, you know, I joined the Save Diablo Canyon WhatsApp group. Um, you know, I wasn't terribly active with that. I was, I was basically I was too afraid to say anything in any of the, any of the meetings. I would dial in and listen. But I was listening and learning because I, I, I was learning about politics. I was learning about advocacy. I was learning about nuclear energy. But he got me really involved in a lot of these organizations, uh, which was helpful. And sometimes there was some pushback. Some of these people would say, what are you doing bringing an oil and gas guy in here? And Mark was always great to say, look, we need a big tent. We don't really mm-hmm. care where you come from. If you're willing to advocate for nuclear energy, you're welcome. And so a lot of times it would take him saying that publicly or to people to get them to back off because I'd go into a room with some people or go under call with some people. And you could tell there's some hostility, you know, we're sure because, sure. you know, a big part of the client, but big part of the nuclear advocacy are climate hawks yep. and, they, and they have come to nuclear energy because they recognize that nuclear energy is, 
is the only way we're going to make major climate advances, you know, advances in, mm-hmm. in uh, climate and CO2 redu- reduction. And so when they get an, an oil and gas guy in there, they're like, but we're here because of those guys. I'm not, I'm not agreeing with that, but that's their perspective. Sure. That's how they feel. Yeah. To them, it feels like, you know, we're basically fraternizing with the enemy here, right? Like exactly. that's what, that's how they see it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm always pretty low key. If I post things, I'm trying to, I'm trying to post articles or information or convince people with, you know, non, I'm not trying to get clicks. I'm not trying to be real reactive. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do things as if I'm a professor trying to educate people. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to give information, not make it partisan, not, you know, not try and uh, hype, hyper hype issues. And, and I do that for two reasons. First is if you're, if you're trying to reach an audience, I don't need to preach to the choir. I'm trying to preach to people who don't already agree with me. And if I'm trying to reach people that don't have my point of view, and I get hyperpartisan right out, out of the shoot, then I lose half my audience. I mean, the people who agree with me stay stay on and listen or read the rest of the article and everybody else just tunes me out. So I try not to get hyperpartisan for that reason. It's not effective in my view. Mm-hmm. But the other reason is, is my kids are all young adults and they just cringe at, at anything dad does that might have any hints of partisanship or, you know. Sure, or yeah, I don't doubt it, yeah. Remain out of the fray. But you remember in 2021, it was getting pretty dicey for Byron and Dresden power plants there in Illinois. It and, was. Well, and we just had Indian Point happen, and which was a big wake-up call, I think, to a lot was. of people in the climate left who didn't understand, right? So we had uh, a influx of younger people into the climate movement, right? Like that is their version of environmentalism, and they don't have Cold War hang-ups around nuclear. And I think to them, it was shocking the degree to which the major organizations that were really altered or created in the 60s and 70s were willing to sacrifice to go after nuclear. To them, they saw it as a huge compromise of values. It made them very uncomfortable. They were really baffled you know, about that. And I think, just as an aside, I think a lot of that bafflement came from how most histories of the environmental movement are basically hagiographies. They're like, look at these heroes who had all the right ideas. And so if you're an environmentalist, you're a good person too. And so nobody had ever really considered how ruthless this movement was going to be against clean energy. Oh my gosh. And I had no idea either. I've been living in my little la-la land. I'm working in oil and gas. I'm just trying to make the next deal work, keep my job, you know, maintain mm-hmm. employment, pay for kids' college. I would, I would, this was all totally new to me. And I was so shocked what a partisan issue this was just just mm-hmm. a few years ago it was a hugely partisan issue. Fortunately, it's become more of a bipartisan issue in a lot of places. Which is great. We love we to see did, that. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had more bipartisan issues. Back, sure. And that, that was happening, and I was part of that WhatsApp group, you know, just to say Byron and Dresden or, or whatever. And again, I wasn't an active participant like Alan Metzger and Maddie and all the other people who were right, involved right. directly, but I was following it. And I'm wondering, what can I do? You know, and I, I can't do anything. I'm sitting here states away. And, and so I did do a post, a political post. And I said, Democrats aren't serious about climate change. If they mm-hmm. were, they would not be opposing bar interest. Now, of course, my post did not change the, the research sure. oh, yeah. that, that, that they saved it. But I said that the week before that vote. And of course, I got a lot of pushback from, you know, family and friends and people who thought I shouldn't be, you know, doing that. But it was true and it was something I, I just felt like needed to be said because we need to get these people, you know, off off center and, and get them to support nuclear energy. I don't think I've probably written a, a political post since then. And I mean, not that many people saw it because I'm not widely followed, so it's no big deal. But I did say that. And I talked to Mark shortly after that. And after Byron and Dresden were saved, I was looking for ways that I could get more involved. How can I actually have an impact? And so Mark says, well, if you're serious about helping, you need to come with me to Berlin because we're going to have a rally in support of the German power plants in 2021. Mm-hmm. So and, and around, around Thanksgiving, I can't remember the day, I think it was 21st of November, but somewhere around in late November, you know, Paris, they mm-hmm. were really in town with Stand Up for Nuclear and they had organized a stand up event in, at the Brandenburg Gates in Berlin with all their German, the German folks that were, uh, you know, trying to save these German 
power plants. And Mark had put together a remarkable group of people and had paid for a lot of people to come to this. We had 20 or 25 countries represented people from South Africa and Korea and uh, all over the world. And I don't want to say it was a protest. I didn't like to say it was a, a rally in support of mm -hmm. keeping the nuclear power plants. Well, we knew, and, and everyone that was there knew we were not going to save those, those three power plants that were closed in 2021. But it was, a, it was a good networking opportunity, and it was a good opportunity to, you know, make a point that maybe you could build on for the next year and the next year and the next year. We knew those three plants were going to be safe. That's where I met Ryan Pickering originally. ETU mm -hmm. uh, went over, and it's so funny because, of course, Mark says, all right, here's a WhatsApp group. They'll tell you where to go, where to meet in Berlin. So I fly over, and they tell me that I'm going to meet at the corner of Strauss of this and Strauss to that. And I get to the, the corner of those two streets, and there's thousands of people because there's a Christmas party going on right there. And I'm like, oh, I got to know who to, who to meet when I get there because I don't know anyone other than Mark Nielsen. I hadn't even met Mark at the time. Mm -hmm. I hadn't met Chris Keeper. I hadn't met any of those people. And so I didn't know what they looked like. Or, and I said, well, I'll go to that corner, but hopefully I find somebody I know. Well, Ryan is acting up just like you would expect, Ryan. He's, he's acting like a, a, a Liberty tax office person. They're dancing and twirling around and, and throwing <laughs> flyers at people. And I said, that's got to be one of us. And yeah, so, no, I'm for sure. So he's the first one in the, in the movement that I actually actually met. And, and then again, the fast forwards from that, I did go back to Berlin again this year with Mark and the whole crew to not protest, but kind of show our dissatisfaction with them closing down the last three power plants. They were supposed to be closed down in December of last year, 2022. And everyone started getting nervous. What if we have a bad winter and how are we going to keep the lights on? And so they post that they didn't keep the plants. I guess they, they, they kept them operating until April 15th. And so yeah, that's right. April, they kicked it until April, yeah. So all of us, a bunch of us showed up over there again. And the rally was much bigger the, the second time around. Stand Up for Nuclear was there, of course, and Paris was there, and Mark was there. Mark took his mom. My wife didn't want to go, so I took my mom. And so <laughs> Mark's mom and my mom from Oklahoma were there at the Brandenburg Bay gates standing in the rain rallying for to for the nuclear industry but i love that uh, so let me yeah. so let me ask you so sure you have this sort of like revelatory experience with that obviously you sort of get bit by the nuclear advocacy bug and you have you're brought into the movement so i you know i sort of i love that we're welcoming in this way you know it's one of my favorite parts about the nuclear movement is that we really you know it's not perfect but we do try to bring as many people in as we can you know, I think Mark is a great sort of a paragon of that ethos, right? And he holds others to that standard. But what, when did you decide, like, I need to get oil and gas execs in on this? Like, how did that idea happen for you? Okay. So it was about November, about a year ago. I was uh, still floundering around. I went to Berlin twice. I've done, you know, donated some money, a little bit of my time, but I, I didn't think I was really doing anything impactful. My kids are all grown. So now I need a hobby. I, <laughs> I still work, but I, you know, what am I going to do with my time? And I wanted to do something more impactful. So my, uh, I'm just thinking, what can I do for this cause? Because I feel strongly that, I mean, I think I heard, I can't remember who said it the other day. They said, you know, think about what the world will look like in a hundred years or what it should look like in a hundred years. And then you should do things now to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And oh, it was, it was Brett Kugelmas, I think. Yeah. And Last Energy, he said, we know in 100 years we're going to be 99% nuclear energy. And I believe that's probably true, whether it's fusion yeah. or fission. And so I'm thinking, what can I do? And I just couldn't figure out what I was going to do. Well, in the meantime, I continue participating in all these, you know, working groups. And I was on the phone with the Diablo Canyon working group last November. And by that time, they had already saved Diablo Canyon. So they rebranded from Save Diablo Canyon to Saved Diablo Canyon. Nice. They're still having meetings because they're still got to work on, well, the, they, they saved Diablo Canyon for five years, but they still gonna have to work on uh, changing the, the law in California to allow new nuclear to be built. 
And they That's also right. want to extend the license of, of, of Diablo Canyon. So there's so much work still to do. So I'm still sitting on these phone calls, listening and learning about all these issues. And one day, our mutual friend, Heather Hoff, and I'm mm -hmm. only telling you her name now because I talked to her last week. And I, and I said, is it all right for me to use your name? Because she had actually forgotten about this exchange. But she had said <laughs> something during the meeting about how oil and gas people hate nuclear energy. And how the nuclear industry itself, I mean, excuse me, the oil and gas industry itself undermines nuclear energy. And I was like, okay, I got to take myself off of mute because I cannot abide by this accusation. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't mean about it or anything, but it was No, just Heather's never mean. She's like no, one of the most generous people. Of God. course. I mean, I'm, an, I'm kind of an asshole. She makes me look like a real asshole. She's so nice and patient with people. She, but she was parroting what she had heard from other people. Obviously, sure. people, if she thinks that, there's a lot of people in the nuclear space that believe that. I used to think that. Yeah. And, and so I said, I, I took myself off of me and I said, Heather, I'm going to push back. I mean, that, I don't think that's true. And I just don't, not only do I think not know anybody who's anti-nuclear in my business, but I also think I'm not aware of any corporations or organizations that are out to get the nuclear industry. I mean, we just don't need to do that. You know, we're all about more energy. We need nuclear on top of oil and gas, not instead of oil and gas. And so I pushed back. It was all very polite. There was no meanness or anything to it. But it got me to thinking. So right after that, that exchange, I started asking around my friends because I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe I got a distorted perspective and maybe my paradigm's wrong. And so I started asking around. I can't find anybody in my industry. And as I've said before, there's 4 million oil and gas employees approximately in the United States at any given yeah. time. I don't know all 4 million of them. And I know <laughs> I have a lot of them. And I don't, I still to this day, so that's a year ago that happened. And now we've been on this venture. I still don't know anyone in my industry that does not support nuclear energy. So I thought, well, how powerful would it be if we got a bunch of oil and gas executives to come out and endorse nuclear energy? And we, we sign a declaration that says, as oil and gas executives, we recognize how important nuclear energy is and, and we support it. And these are the things we need to do to promote nuclear energy. And I thought it was a great idea. And I thought it was powerful because you don't see executives from the solar industry promoting coal, or you don't see people from other mm -hmm. industries promoting their, their competition. And I felt like oil and gas people are usually pre-knowledgeable about energy. They can recognize the superior energy above and inferior energy, and they gain nothing by coming out in support of nuclear energy. So if you've got a bunch of oil and gas people who come out, they gain nothing from from doing so. Mm -hmm. In fact, they may even put themselves, you know, in harm's way a little bit because people are going to say, why are you saying this? You know, I think it's powerful. It's a powerful message. But I didn't think that I could probably pull this off. And so I thought, you, do you know Chris Wright? Chris Wright is the CEO of Liberty Energy. Yeah, I know of him. I don't know him personally, but I've, I've heard him interviewed. Very sharp guy. He's extremely sharp. He's the CEO of Liberty Energy, which is the second largest frack company in the world behind Halliburton. Mm -hmm. During COVID, they bought Slumberjay. So mm. the merger of their original company plus Slumberjay made them number two behind Halliburton. So they're a very a massive company. And there is no one that speaks out better on behalf of the oil and gas industry or on behalf of energy in general than Chris Wright. I mean, he's really sharp. He's MIT educated. I think he actually probably studied nuclear energy yeah. in school. He's done a lot of things, but really sharp guy. And so I texted him and I said, Chris, I've got this idea. What do you think? And Chris is so gracious with his tongue, always gracious, but I don't always expect him to immediately respond to a text sure. from me. I mean, he, he's a, yeah, a, no, totally. a busy person. Almost immediately, I get a text back from him that said, I love this idea. Let's do it. So we decided to write this declaration. And of course I say, we, it wasn't him. It was me. And originally I, so I spent several months working on this declaration and I didn't know how much to say because what I wanted to do is have something that would be meaningful, something that would kind of say our, our philosophy of why we need nuclear 
And then what do we specifically need to do to get more nuclear? But of course, if you ask 100 people, you'll get 100 different opinions on what that is. Yeah, and, for sure. And, and that, and of course, I'm still working my full-time job. Now it's the holidays, it's Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I still got to, you know, keep my paying job going. Um, but so I spent probably more time than I should have working on this declaration. At one point, it was as long as six pages. I realized nobody's going to read six pages. I was as short as one <laughs> page at one time. I should I really take could, your advice. I should, I should be <laughs> writing shorter things. <laughs> I couldn't say everything on one page. So we ended up with two pages. And so after I got something that I really liked, I reached out to some of our mutual friends like Liz Madsen and you, as a matter of fact, you, I don't know if you remember, you, I sent it to you and you gave me I some really good advice on, on, you know, some grammatical corrections, but also some substantive corrections. And then our mutual friend, Mark Heidemann got involved and love Mark and helped edit some things in it. And then the, the coup d'etat in March. Mark Nelson was coming to town. He's got family here and he was coming to town to ski. And so he, he said, Hey, I'm coming to town. You want to, you want to get together? And I said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to the airport and pick you up. Now we're going to go someplace <laughs> quiet where you won't be distracted. Cause he's, he's bad about getting distracted. Yeah, and we true. went to a bar and he and Mark Heineman and I sat down and finished wordsmithing this declaration. Oh, I love that story. That's great. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And, and Mark, you know, Mark has always has great ideas and comments. And there's a lot of things I wasn't really sure what to say. I mean, there's a lot of people who think we ought to just blow up the, you know, our seat. The sure. Brett, yeah. Brett Google Mass, when I called him to talk about it, he said, Oh, that's the first thing he's going to tell you. He's like, well, first you go buy your C4. And then, you, you know, like that's the... I, I called him to say, how would you reform the NRC? And you're right. You go to C4. We're, <laughs> we're blowing it up. And of course, Mark is more diplomatic than that. He said, we have to work with these people. It's not going to get blown up. So we can't put that in the declaration. But I think there are a lot of people who really feel that way. And for sure. Uh, yeah. But anyway, nothing, Mark, nothing brought out my libertarian streak more <laughs> than learning about the NRC. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that is a common experience for everybody. So. It seems like you're putting together this vision, though, where you're like, okay, how do we have I, this? I don't want to be unfair to Brett because I think substantial reforms are needed, but you need to appear reasonable, right? Like per everything that you said, you don't want to start. I should have taken my own advice on this maybe years ago. You don't want to start by drawing a line in the sand, right? If you want to sort of have entry A into the pro nuclear movement, but B, have there be free flow between O and G and the pro-nuclear movement and the powers that be. And I'm not going to criticize Brett. I mean, he he's, he has drawn the light in the sand and his line is, I'm just going to operate only overseas. I'm not going to operate in the U.S. Yep. You know? Yeah, that's the, that's the plan. So, but we finally wordsmith this and, you know, everyone can say, I like something better here or something better. He left something out, whatever. But we came up with something we all felt pretty good about. And so I then printed it out and or I, I emailed it over to Chris Wright. And I wasn't even sure if Chris Wright remembered him telling me, yes, we should go for this. Yeah, but right, I yeah. There and I said, look, we got a rough draft. I'd like you to look at it because I, if, if I want you to be the first signature on the thing, then I want you to, you know, you got to like what you see in it. And so I thought I would send it to him and he would do the final word crafting. Well, I sent it over to him and he said, oh, it looks great. Cited immediately, didn't, didn't change a word in it. And he signed it and we're off to the races. And so we start going out and contacting people and a lot of it's word of mouth. And it's hard to, to get the attention of oil and gas executives because they're, they're busy. Yeah, they're all busy people. Busy people creating energy for the world, badly needed energy for the world. But, you know, and I still have my full-time job, which I, I have to pay attention to, but We've got over 100 executives that have signed this declaration, and most of them signed it, I mean, immediately. I mean, they didn't hesitate. They didn't say, well, I agree with you, but I'm not sure if I can sign it. I mean, almost everyone, when you ask them, they just say, yeah, give me a copy. Where's the pen? And yeah, so, I mean, you got 100 signatures. I remember when you told me that, I was like, uh, you know, this is a little behind the scenes in my own head. And I was like, good luck, buddy. I was like, <laughs> hundreds a lot. I was like, that's a, that's a lot of anything. I was like, I, it's not that I thought that the, oh, cause at that point I'd realized that oil and gas people weren't, you know, necessarily anti-nuclear, 
But I was like, it's A, it's hard to get a hold of executives. Yeah. B, it's hard to get five people to agree to one thing, let alone a hundred, right? Yeah. I'm I'm amazed and and some big names too. And the, the CEO of Chesapeake Energy in Oklahoma wow. City. He contacted me. I didn't even reach out to him. I didn't know him. I didn't feel like I had a way to get a hold of him. And he heard about it through the grapevine and sent me an email or sent a message through a mutual friend and said, Hey, have him send it over to me. I'd love to do it. We have, you know, executives from a lot of the major companies from Devon, the former CEO of Continental Resources. Toby Rice was was huge. And actually, I'm going to give kudos to Robert Bryce because, you know, Toby Rice is the CEO of EQT, which is the largest mm-hmm. producer of natural gas up in the Marcellus. And a huge, he's probably second to, to Chris Wright in terms of being an advocate for our industry. Mm-hmm. Very important guy. They run. Yeah, a- Toby Rice is huge. Yeah. And he's, he, they run a really lean shop. I mean, you can't call over there and say, hey, can I talk to Toby Rice's personal assistant? I mean, they run such a lean shop. It's really hard to get a hold of him. And I sent him a couple of emails. I did find his email address, but I never could get his attention. And I told Robert Bryce that one day. He said, oh, I'll get it. And so Robert sends an email to Toby and says, Toby, meet my friend, Doug Sandridge. You need to know about this nuclear advocacy. And I swear within less than an hour, Toby Rice had responded and, and he signed up. No questions asked. I mean, he, he was like, yeah, baby, bring it on. So he's okay. Only gets people that, I mean, they, they are not threatened by the idea of advocating for nuclear energy. Well, right. And I think, I think there's something that, I mean, you tell me about this. Cause like, I think people homogenize oil and gas as an industry becomes monolithic, right? But I mean, you and I both know there's upstream, midstream, and downstream, right? Like in terms of like, who's doing what? So my understanding is a lot of the people that you've gotten are like probably up or mid, I'm guessing, right? So it's, 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 it's pulling it out and moving it, right? That's what's happening. To me, the only people I can think of in the oil and gas industry who might have a bone to pick with Nuclear are people who own and operate like peaker plants in ERCOT or whatever. Like conceptually, they might say, yeah, like nuclear energy is fine. But when it comes to like, what are the market rules for ERCOT? They're like, oh, I'm going to chisel for my advantage all day against that baseload. And like, that's the name of the game. Like, I don't even take that personally. Right. In the same way that I don't take it personally when the renewables people are like, oh, we're going to flood these power markets with distorting subsidies. I'm like, yeah, like that's the competition we're in. But I think it's important to make that distinction. Right. Like the oil industry isn't all one thing. And it's not like there's this big plan across the three components of the oil industry to like maintain dominion over every single element of energy production in the U.S. I'm still unaware of any individual person, and I'm still unaware of any company and the oil and gas businesses out there undermining nuclear energy. It's just not true. In fact, I think there's more and more oil and gas companies that are invested either secretly or not so secretly in nuclear energy. Right. Well, and so this this will come out after an interview I had with the incredible young man, Isaiah Taylor over at Valor Atomics. And his whole plan is he was like, I don't want to produce electricity with nuclear. He's like, I want to produce fuels. He's like, that's what I want to do, right? He's like, that is my, he's like, I want to build big ass plants and I just want to crank sin fuels all day, you know? So I think we're going to see, this is my anticipation. You tell me what you think about this, Doug, as somebody who's in the energy industry and not just a keyboard jockey writing about it like me is that I think nuclear advocates are about to be surprised by the fact that people are going to become pro-nuclear with their own vision for what nuclear is supposed to do for humanity. That isn't necessarily just climate. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, um, you know, most of the people that I know, if not all the people that I know that are pro-nuclear in, you know, in my industry, they're not pro-nuclear because of the climate issues. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying the climate people are wrong and I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about climate. Climate is an issue. It's just not the only issue. Sure. But yeah, but but none of the people that I know that are supporting nuclear energy that are in my industry are supporting it for climate reasons. They're supporting it because they realize 
that human flourishing requires more energy. Raising people out of poverty requires more energy. We just need more energy generally, and we think that nuclear is a better way to go than trying to do an all-electric, all-battery, all-renewable you know, energy system. It's just, it's, we just don't believe that's very practical. So, yeah, I think there's going to be all sorts of ways that we haven't even thought of to use mm -hmm. nuclear energy. As a matter of fact, I was unaware, but there's a consortium of some companies out in West Texas that in the Permian Basin who are trying to see what they can do about getting, a, you know, some nuclear energy going out there to A, support ongoing oil and gas operations. Sure. And there, there's two, there's several reasons for that. One is the Permian has grown so fanatically that the electric grid has not been able to keep up. And so I had a friend that works at a refinery out there and he said, if we wanted to, you know, request new service from the service provider out there, we put in a, a request for new service. It might be three to five years before we get new service. Wow. They're so far behind. Wow. We, we can't get the electricity. We can't get the transformers. We can't get the transmission. There's not enough. No one can get the transformers right now. Right? Yeah, and there's not enough skilled people to go do it. Yeah. And so, you know, so this guy told me, we're looking at putting together a consortium with companies and we're just going to do our own. We're just going to get us, you know, a small, maybe a micro reactor or a small modular reactor and, and build out our own system out there because that's going to be easier and faster and more dependable than relying on, because you got all these people competing for the limited resources out there. And it's not just to produce it, but there's pressure, even in Texas, pressure to clean up oil and gas extraction operations. We're not talking about closing down oil and gas operations. No, talking about cleaning it up. I think that's exciting. I think the first time I ever heard about that was through Mark Heinemann. And that changed my whole perspective, right? Because you know my story, right? I mean, we talked about it when I was in Colorado. Was that last year or this year? Early. Wow, that was earlier this year. That's crazy. I was in Colorado to give a lecture. And one of the things, you know, you, Mark Heinem and I hung out afterwards. It was very generous of you guys to come out. And I talked about like my experience seeing the Permian Basin going into Midland for the first time. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. First of all, I was like, I had no idea that it was this big. I had no idea this amount of physical capital was involved. But people, if you've never touched down in Midland, if it's a clear day, usually is the quilt work of like pump jacks and track pads that you can see like extending onto the horizon is like awe inspiring. And Mark had been like, well, I want to clean up that process. I was like, that's great. I was like, use less fuel on site. You know, you have so much more power. You can do more things with it. Like who knows what that'll do in terms of innovations that will inspire in acquiring fossil fuels and sourcing them from the ground. Like a lot of different things could be possible that are really beneficial to everybody. Replace all those diesel engines with- Exactly. And you're still going to produce the oil. I mean, you, you're, not, you're not closing the, the wells off by doing this. What you're doing is you're saying, as we extract this, there's a lot less CO2, there's a lot less knocks and socks and everything else that comes mm -hmm. from burning diesel. It's also, it's also about making the frack fleets quieter, especially in neighborhoods like in Colorado. We have a lot of willing gas production in neighborhoods. Yeah. And as it gets closer, right? To, so I know that out in Midland, some of the sites are getting closer and closer to the city limits. So, so I'm sure it's going to be start being very attractive soon. <laughs> to have quieter fleets, right? Yeah. And no the best sense. way to do that is with you have electric fleets, but you have to have electricity to have electric yep. fleets. And if it's a five year, takes you five years to get a new hookup, you can't do that. So mm -hmm. I do see this vision. Um, you know, there are a lot of oil companies. I, I know, I'm not going to say who they are, but I know four major oil companies in the U.S. that are invested in fusion or fission or both. Yep. And you don't hear about that, but they, they recognize, again, another good energy source. And they recognize that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not going to say what company, but company X is not going to just be an oil and gas company 10 years from now. They're going to be an energy company that's made up primarily of oil and gas and maybe nuclear. Yeah. Oh, hey, and, and why not? Right. Like, I think that's the thing that people don't understand. Like these companies have a ton of expertise, have a ton of capital. 
if you know they wet their finger and feel which way the wind's blowing and you know it suddenly becomes you know not prohibitive to build nuclear why wouldn't they as a prudent investment reallocate yeah. some of that you know capital human or otherwise towards building nuclear i mean you're already talking about industry, like people in an industry that have figured out how to establish even if it's fraught cooperative relationships with regulators that often have aggressive activist elements within them. Yeah. I mean, then just the legal teams that go into that, all of that stuff, like, I think we need to think more holistically about what it takes to build nuclear here and understand that ONG has a lot of inbuilt assets that might help us achieve that. I mean, that's that's me as a layperson who's not in the industry. Tell me what you think about what I just said. Well, yeah, of course. And that's, first of all, that's a whole nother podcast to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, they're just, uh, the more I get into it, the more I realize it's such a hard nut to crack. We've mm -hmm. got cost pressures. We've got uh, capital pressures. We've got uh, regulatory pressures. I mean, there's just so many things that have to be solved. So this isn't an easy venture. So that will have to be, you know, hour number two. Sure, uh, but yeah. you're right. I think that one thing you can't, you know, if you hate oil and gas, you cannot, you have to admit they have great technology. They've got great engineers. They've got great visions. They've got great R&D department. They are, they could be a catalyst for movement in this industry because they have, and like you said, it's beyond just the technical part. You've got regulatory, legal staffs that all understand I mean, we live in a legal and regulatory environment here in Colorado, second to none in the oil and gas business. You know, these people understand the kind of things that have to happen from a regulatory standpoint, the relationships and so on and so forth. And those could all be transformed into, you know, into the nuclear industry as well. So I, I totally agree. And there's no reason why oil and gas people should not be milking more at the oil, at the nuclear industry. I mean, Doug, you're getting me fired up here. <laughs> Talking about nuclear and OG at the same time is a great way to get me darn fired up. So let me ask you. So you've well, done... you say, say, I just want to say, you know what fires me up is having an ex-Marxist so far <laughs> about oil and gas. That's what yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to hear that. So you've got all these people, right? You've got all these CEOs. You've published a thing, by the way, people go read it in the show notes. I think there, I mean, I think this is a great step forward. I'm excited to see what comes next. So let me just ask you, what comes next? Like what, what do you have on the horizon for execs for nuclear? Well, you know, I'm hoping that by doing interviews like this, we'll get other people that'll hear this and they'll want to step up and sign the declaration. So you, you laughed when I said 50 and you laughed when I said a hundred. So now I'm going to send a bar. Maybe we can get 200. Maybe we can Hey, who's laughing now, dude? You, you got me beat, bud. <laughs> we can, you know, so I think we want to continue doing that. But right now we've got uh, a lot of big names on the list and we have over 100 names on the list. So there's power in numbers and power in the, in the, big, in the names as well. We're, I, I've asked people, what can I do? And, and as I listen to other podcasts about nuclear energy, you know, the, the changes that are going to occur at the NRC are going to occur because they get pressure from Congress and from the public. And the public and Congress are going to pressure those changes as the mood of the people change. And so, yeah. as, and since I'm not a nuclear engineer, I, I lost that chance to do that. And since I'm not in the nuclear industry, one thing I can do is communicate these ideas to a broader and broader and broader audience thereby making more people talk about it, making it more, making nuclear more mainstream, making people talk about it at the Thanksgiving table. Then eventually, as that momentum grows, then you're going to see more pressure on the NRC to make some meaningful changes, which are not the only thing we have to do, but would be one very positive thing that we need to do to get more nuclear built. In addition to that very broad mandate to, 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 extol all the benefits of nuclear energy and how important it is for human flourishing here in the States and, and otherwise, then we want to focus on specific areas. And so right now, um, I'm trying to, going to use this nuclear declaration to put some pressure on some congressmen, senators in Colorado 
because we're trying in Colorado uh, to get uh, nuclear energy defined as a clean energy. Right now, nuclear energy is not uh, is not included with wind and solar and and hydro and geothermal as a clean energy, and that's that's a travesty. And Colorado is one of the states where we do not have bipartisan support. Everything that has come down the line for nuclear energy in Colorado has been voted down by a Democrat, Democrat majority in the House and the Senate and the governor's house. So we're trying to change minds here. And so we're using this, we're going to be using this declaration and all the signatures and a lot of the local signatures to put pressure on some of our senators. We got another bill coming up in the spring to try and get nuclear added to, you know, to the definition of clean energy. And so we'll, every time we have an opportunity to use this declaration as a bully pulpit, then we'll, we'll do it in individual places like we're going to do in Colorado in February. That's great. I think that's really exciting. Yeah. I think, I think you're totally right that, I mean, I've said before that, you know, in America, public opinion is king. That's Abraham Lincoln, not me, you know, (laughs) pretty sure he was smarter than me, knew what he was talking about. And so that definitely has to change. But I really appreciate what is happening at state levels as part of that, because I think, you know, it's almost good that Colorado has this Democrat majority, because it means if they can be flipped on nuclear, then it's an even more powerful signal for other states that have similar majorities that are proving equally resistant, if not more resistant. I'm looking at you, California. You know, so I think I think that's really crucial work. And because you and I mentioned earlier that what happens here has to be bipartisan, right? That doesn't mean that everybody's going to get what they want or that nobody's ever going to fight about how this happens. It's America and our politics have been as fractious as soon as we formed a republic, you know, but I think that that is the only way that this gets done because otherwise it's one side you know putting forward its plans and then as soon as they're out of office the other side comes in and gets rid of them right we need some constancy over time through administrations what we need is for energy abundance to be a salience issue like street crime and inflation where if you screw that up both sides are mad at you right so i think that's that's where we're going before we let go here, I got to ask you something just about ONG, because I'm, I'm really curious, right? You've been very generous with your time today. One of the things that I wonder about is what it's like to be in oil and gas today in terms of the political climate around it and what it was like to be 10, 20, 30 years ago. Like you have a ton of industry experience. Am I wrong? in thinking that there is just increasing hostility that's happening politically and culturally here? Or is that just recency bias, right? Like, I just think that because I'm seeing it more, that it's happening more. Tell me from your perspective. Uh, it's it's true. And it's it's funny. I heard somebody else talking about this just this week. And it's absolutely true. I know when I got in the in, in, out of school, and that was a long time ago, I Everyone I knew that was in the oil and gas business was proud to be in the oil and gas business. We mm. were proud of what we did. And we didn't do everything right. There, there's things that, you know, the industry is so much better now than it was 40 years ago when I started. I mean, so much better on so many issues. But even then, there's so much pride because oil and gas has provided the ability for us to not live in poverty mm-hmm. in the last, you know, 100 years. And there's so much pride and you never were ashamed. And now most everybody I know in my industry, especially in Colorado, I mean, they just hide. They don't, they don't tell anybody what they do. If people ask, you know, they say, what do you do? And say, well, I'm in energy. You know, they won't say I'm in oil and gas. It's absolutely true. And I even went on a trip one time with my mom and we went with, with a group of people to Cuba a few years ago. And the first day that we got there, they went around the room at lunch and asked everybody what they did. And I made the mistake. Actually, I did say, I'm in energy. And they said, well, what does that mean? What are you in energy? And so I said, well, I'm in oil and gas. 
And then one of the ladies said, please tell me you don't frat. And I was like, yes, we do. Yeah. And my mom and I were like pariahs the rest of the trip. I mean, nobody wanted to sit next to us. They didn't want to eat the table with us. They didn't want to be around us. It was really sad to see that we got to that point. And the, 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 the hypocrisy of it is these people still burn fuel oil in their home in Boston. They still drive cars. They still. Oh, dude, gas- if they live, hold on. If they're from Boston. Come on. Like you, if you live in New England and like you're sucking down all that LNG, I don't even want to hear about it, bro. Like it's unreal. I mean, sorry. Okay. Hold yeah, on. It, so it is me, it is I'm sorry that happened to you. That's very unfortunate. It confirms some of what I'm thinking, like or some of what I've been worried about because I've talked about this before, but one of the things that happens in the mid-century is a similar demoralization within the utility industry. And then it became harder and harder for the utility industry to, because it was also mature by then. I think there's still plenty of room for innovation in ONG. I think it's actually happening all the time. So it's probably a little different, but it was a mature industry and they had a really hard time securing top tier talent. And that problem continued, like you can read op-eds and trade publications up through the 80s and probably beyond, you know, where they were doing that. And that worries me. It worries me when fathers tell their sons not to follow in their footsteps in this industry. I think America loses not just the economic benefits of having a strong ONG industry, not just losing a certain level of engineering competence, but I think it is bad for the nation's morale when we start feeling ashamed of our greatest victories. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of hope. You know, it's always good to have some hope, whether it's- Yeah, let's end on hope. Give me me a dose. And it's true because, I mean, you see across the nation, it's very difficult to get students into petroleum engineering, Mm -hmm. geological engineering, Difficult to get him petroleum land management, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of thing I do. It, the the class sizes, you know, programs are folding. There's just not enough people. And, you know, I think there's a distinct possibility that 25 years from now, that most of the petroleum engineers in the world will be from Africa mm-hmm. and Asia and China and other places, they, and the Middle East. They won't be from here. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. But I did talk to the director of our pro, uh, the program that I graduated from at the University of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And they, and so these are the two, two things that are positive. This last year, this year, they've seen an uptick in a student enrollment in their program for the first time since I think 2019. So it's just, that's great. So of course, COVID killed a lot of things, but um, Mm -hmm. they, they, and it really has been struggling. But now he said this year, as a matter of fact, I teach a class there, I, I lecture at a one, a one night class in the fall. And he called me recently and said, you know what? We've got so many students. I now have to do that class in the fall and the spring. Can you come back and teach it in the spring as well? Oh, that's great. So that's positive. The other thing is I'm going to go back to Chris Wright. I, I've never been a real confrontive person. I've never been the person that would just get out in front of somebody and point my finger and, you know, be loud and loud and proud. And I have allowed myself over the last 40 years to be beaten and whipped and ashamed of being in the oil and gas business because there's so much public pushback. And Chris Wright, the last few years, has been such an outstanding advocate for oil and gas. And he advocates for a lot of things, including nuclear energy. Obviously, he's the first one to sign our declaration. Mm-hmm. But he tells it the way it is, and he is unashamed. And he's, his ESG report, you should go back, you should go and read Liberty Energy's ESG report sometime. It is amazing. And they pull no punches. They never apologize for anything. They, they tell it the way it is. Why every person that only has business should be so proud of, be, of doing what they do. And literally, in the last two years, especially the last year, he has inspired me to stop being the passive person because I see what he's doing, and it's hard, especially when people are talking out against you. But he has inspired me to be much more vocally outwardly vocal about being proud to be in the oil and gas business. I'm not going to apologize for putting all these 6,000 products into your life. I'm not going to apologize for putting asphalt on the roads. I'm not going to apologize 
for heating your homes. I'm not going to apologize anymore. And so I have to say, Chris Wright has, has unleashed for a lot of us. He's, he's given us authority to go out and speak the truth and be less, less intimidated and less embarrassed to be a new one, I guess. Well, hell yeah, brother. That's what I like <laughs> to hear. So we'll end it on that note. If anybody wants to check this out, anybody wants to sign the declaration, check the show notes. I, I can put your LinkedIn address yeah, in there. You can put my People can find there. you. Yeah, you can do LinkedIn. Or if they want to, there's a place on the website, which you'll you'll put the website address on there. Yes, sir. It says sign the declaration. What you do is you just put your name into a thing. You'll send me an email. And I, I at one time, I just thought about letting people just sign it on the website, but you kind of lose track of, you know, the legitimacy of who's signing it. Yep. So what it does is you put your name in there, it sends me an email, and then I will reach out to you and we will find a way for you to physically sign the declaration. And so just go to the website. You can send me an email and or, or, or message me on LinkedIn. All right. Fantastic. So everybody... Thanks for tuning in, Doug. Thanks for being here. Remember, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.